This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. The Melbourne Festival is running from the 6th to the 23rd of October and its rather attractively designed program uh, was launched on Tuesday night. Joining us in the festival is the... Joining us in the festival? Joining us in the studio is the festival's artistic director, Jonathan Holloway. Jonathan, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Uh, how does it feel to actually now have your your brand spanking new debut Melbourne Festival program it's, out in the world? It's very nice. It means I can talk about it and um, and it, it's real. It's real. No one can stop us anymore. That's, there's a period up to when it happens and you think this will never happen. It's never going to happen. Um, and then, and it's there. So really excited and, and thrilled that people are responding very well and it's just, it's very exciting. Look, and I've got to say, it's an exciting program as well because sometimes international festival programs, there can be a, a certain sense of sameness around them. You go, okay, well, that great show was on in, uh, I don't know, Edinburgh last year and then the next year it's been picked up by this festival. And so you can sometimes things get shopped around a little bit. So, the, but there's a, a kind of freshness to your program for this year's festival that, that I rather like. Oh, thank you. Uh, I mean, I, the truth is that there's, there's so much work in the world and, um, and, and the really good work will go to international festivals hopefully um but it's it's also it's nice because we have 10 world premieres this year in the festival which and it's not how we started i didn't start out saying you know what we're going to do premieres and exclusives and whatever which often you do as a festival director actually i just started working out what is the right program for this city and how to make it different to anything else i've ever um programmed or presented and how, what's the combination of work that would really speak about and of and in and for Melbourne. Um, and as a result, it's, it's been really interesting. But yes, there's, there are a few surprises in there that, I mean, genuinely, even I open the pages and go, yes, okay, that's <laughs> great. Well, and particularly intriguing, I guess, in that when you were on the show a couple of months ago, we got you on to introduce it to the listeners to say, this is the new festival director. And you talked about your sense of Melbourne and what Melbourne is about and what Melbourne likes. And it's it's a political city and it's a community uh, uh, city that's very engaged on those kind of levels. Um, and as you mentioned in your speech on Tuesday night, it's also a city where people are already happy to go out and see a couple of shows in a night and jump on a tram and go then go to a, a late night restaurant or bar or something like that so it's not your job to engage them and encourage them to step outside their comfort zones in sense in the sense of okay we'll go and see an unknown artist and then we'll go and see someone we love and then we'll we'll do a uh, a late night gig at the at the toffin town or something like that which you're using as the festival club this year so if you don't have to engage the audience in that way as you might in a in a different city with a quieter nightlife for example how do you focus and engage on the people of Melbourne to get them out into the festival? And that was absolutely the starting point, was um, the idea, yeah, everywhere else you think, well, look, the job of the festival is to make sure people go out four nights a week, and that's a quiet night. That's a quiet week in Melbourne. So um, starting with the idea of, uh, first of all, we don't need to do, we don't need to do something for everyone, and we don't need to do everything that appeals quite a bit to everyone. We, I really am interested in that sort of, Vegemite or, or, or truffle or, or, uh, or, or salted licorice, which I actually hate, uh, approach to programming, which is, I don't want smashed avocado. I don't want people going, you know what? 
that program's really quite nice. Um, I, I do want certain events where people say, I would not miss that for the world, and other events where people say, wild horses will not drag me uh, to see that gig. So um, I, I kind of did want a degree of ex- extremes in individual gigs. Hopefully people aren't saying the entire program is salted licorice. That would be, personally speaking, awful. But I, I do think that, that the other thing is, how do we make a festival that is surprising and interesting in a place that has so much surprise and so much interest. And um, I, the first few years of festivals are quite good fun because you can do things that no one's ever seen before. But but by year 30 or 40 or 50, and, and we're in 31 now here, um, uh, you actually, there are no tricks you can pull. You actually just have to be real and you have to try and understand the city, which is dangerous. And also you can, you can get such a kicking by saying, I believe Melbourne is like this. And you go, that's fantastic. You've been here 16 months. Um, thank you for that. <laughs> so it's actually just being honest and saying, well, my sense is this, but we're all discovering it. Well, one of the things that intrigued me about the program is just the breadth of work that is on offer. You've got everything uh, from a celebration of Star Trek uh, th- through to uh, the Australian uh, vocal artist and composer Lisa Gerard, best known for her film work as well as Dead Can Dance performing. So there's one range there of works. Then you've got theatre works that are designed either for an audience of one at a time, for example, uh, or you've got outdoor running around laneways with people setting themselves on fire spectaculars as well so this real diversity of work on not just one from one end of the spectrum to another it seems like there are multiple spectrums being explored here absolutely and and um actually we we, the opening events the opening words of the festival and and opening uh, dance and and, and movements is tandarum which is the first peoples uh, which is an event that that sort of Restages and then re-welcomes people to country and is the culmination of a, of a, of a coming together of the five clans of the Kulin nation, um, in a way that, uh, before Josephine's festivals three years ago hadn't been seen since 1835 in that form. So the first words are, um, the first peoples and the, and the final words on the last day of the festival, uh, working with Multicultural Arts Victoria, uh, an event, uh, from the, the latest arrivals and the new communities and the new, uh, immigrant communities who are here in Melbourne. And so I actually think that's the breadth. We can't miss anyone out on that spectrum. There's a, there, it, it's not binary. Uh, society isn't binary. Festivals aren't binary. And so I really like the idea that, that all levels uh, from, from 40,000 years um, of history to the next 40,000 years, which will be incredibly diverse, um, will be celebrated in, in one festival. Now, there are some obvious highlights that that leap out. You've got a new work from uh, Geelong-based internationally renowned company Back to Back Theatre, for example, which has been described to me as their their largest and most ambitious work yet. Uh, you've also got an internationally renowned uh, artist who is very well known on the festival scene, uh, Robert Lepage, uh, and his work... Uh, 887, which I believe is a very personal work. From Incredibly personal, yes. It's, it's, the reason I was so excited is because it's his, um, his autobiographical work about his childhood in Quebec City. And he was brought up uh, bilingual and in a community that was both acknowledging, uh, acknowledging the first peoples of Canada alongside um, very diverse, again, very diverse uh, immigrant communities. And, 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 but the work is about about theatre, it's about ideas, but it's also about his childhood and, and language and, and this one 
incredible poem that the whole piece is building up to this single uh, sort of seminal uh, Canadian poem which is about race and is about culture but it's him as a, as a as a grown man looking back on his childhood when he was brought up that 887 is the number of the house he was born in and brought up in so but but to, again I like the idea that that Rob Lepage is alongside back to back there, there's no, uh, and, and not in a kind of a these are the local people and this is the international people this is just excellent work and it would be next to itself uh, they would be next to each other in New York or London or Paris or anywhere in the world so um, we should have no hesitation about putting great work from here alongside great work from anywhere else one of the other things that the festival will allow people to do is, I guess, put their money where their mouth is. We live in a culture which talks a lot about empowering young people. Uh, you've programmed a work by Mammalian Diving Reflex, Haircuts by Children, which does what it says in the tin. Yeah. It, it asks adults to sit down and surrender themselves to, to very young hairdressers. Now, I'm certainly up for this. I, I, I badly need a haircut at the moment, as you can see. But the, the sheer notion of just saying, well... If we are going to actually believe in kids, then let's trust them to do something intimate and possibly painful. And, and I really like the idea of both empowering uh, children, young people. Yes, I mean the, the idea that you say let's give them, let's give them the vote or let's give them a say. But no, give them scissors, sit in the chair if you want to really empower them. And then alongside that is something like the money, where the audience themselves, uh, people put money in the middle. Uh, half the audience donates between twenty and two thousand. Most people will obviously donate 20. And uh, the rest of the audience sits around the outside and watches, and the people in the middle decide how will that money be spent. And it has to be unanimous. It has to be done in the hour after the show. It, it must be legal, um, which obviously is different country, country to country, what is legal. But, um, uh, again, it just re-empowering people to say the nature of democracy and civic society is the conversation. And it's almost a game, but it's 100% theatre. Now, speaking of games, talk to us about some of the games you have to play as festival director to get works up and on, because part of your job, I'm sure, is about negotiation, negotiating with the board of the festival to convince them that these are the right works for Melbourne, negotiating with artists internationally to say, please come to my festival, no, please, no, please, uh, and and then also juggling uh, with sponsors and partners and philanthropists and, I don't know, uh, the, the cultural departments of governments overseas to say, hey, how, if we're going to bring these guys over, what can you chip in? How much of your job is just a constant juggling act? Um, oh, look, not more than 80 or 90%. I mean, uh, there's, there's a theory that being a festival director is mainly going to launches, openings and talking to artists and travelling the world and having a wonderful time. And yes, I mean, actually, uh, enough of it is that to make it lovely and I enjoy doing that. But yes, uh, at least 60% of it, probably a lot more, probably, probably 80%, is... Um, is about the the art of the possible. Uh, it's about pushing boundaries. Because if if I had a budget of, for example, ten thousand dollars, there is no question my ideas would cost fifteen thousand dollars before uh, before before breakfast. And so uh, automatically. And so um, the desire to sort of push push that, and everyone around me shares that desire to make things happen. So uh, it's about it is about persuasion. It's about a sell and. There's a lot of selling. I mean, I, it's an easy sell, and interestingly, it's an easy sell to the rest of the world to say, come to Melbourne. 
But then to say come to Melbourne during October in the festival, not in January, February, when you can also do other festivals in Australia and the Arts Centre, or uh, what about not coming at that time or not not being in that space but being in our space? That's difficult. And um, and But people fundamentally respond really well to this city. So it's it's... It's either in people's top five cities or it's on their bucket list. Uh, it's very rare you have to say, no, Melbourne in Australia, for example. Um, and so that's, it's great. But it's, um, and then, and then the moment when it does get printed, that is the moment when you think, okay, I can't quite believe that that's there. And then, and then you see what happens. But there's also, uh, someone once said there's only two stages to any artistic project and that's, it's too soon to tell. And it's too late to do anything about it. There, there, that's it. And 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 the, the the point of a board and the point of your team and yourself and everyone is at the moment it changes from it's too soon to tell to it's too late, is to say and are we going to do this thing? Because once you commit, uh, you can't change it. You can't add shows. You can't take shows away, um, uh, bar disaster. But um, uh, this is uh, I mean you put it out in the world. And that's it. You can't calibrate for another year. How late in the piece, uh, like how soon before the, the guide was printed and then launched on Tuesday, were you still finalising works? Because I got a, a briefing from you several weeks ago and the Star Trek 50th anniversary concert, I'm, I'm sure that wasn't on the list Oh, it was under, under embargo, Richard. Uh, we were just very clear about, you want to keep some surprises and secrets. Obviously, nothing's ever uh, unknown. Um, yes, no, uh, well... There are deadlines before we go to print, but there are moments. There are moments in the even the week before when things are, are falling in and falling out, and 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 uh, probably the last performance not to get over the line was would have been a week, would have been four weeks ago, and the last one to get over the line would have been three and a half weeks ago, wow. maybe. It's cutting it fairly fine. It's fairly fine, and and it's uh, it's uh, there are moments when it's a white knuckle ride, but again, I'm, I'm it, it's it's I was going to say it's not life and death, but clearly. There's big events in there that it really is very important to get them right, and and there's a lot of health and safety. But it is, it's, it's. Uh, there's, there are moments when you just you get right to the line on it, and it doesn't interestingly get easier. The, the theory that says, ah, oh, well, you've done a, it's not your first rodeo, but you know, rodeos are difficult. I've never done a rodeo. Uh, it's a terrible metaphor. <laughs> I'd like to see you try. No, I'm not. I'm, I want to leave the rodeo thing. But I mean, it, I still can't ice skate, and uh, learning to ice skate wouldn't make uh, me, uh, wouldn't make it possible for me to perform in vertical influences. It's still difficult, and you still don't know how it will land until the very last moment. Now, you've just mentioned ice skating. The sheer fact that there is a contemporary dance piece on ice intrigues me automatically because when I think of on ice, I think of Disney spectaculars and fairly tacky experiences. But you've programmed a work down at the ice rink at Docklands, uh, to which we will all be visiting, many of us, for the first time, uh, to, to watch that work. And you've programmed one of my favourite uh, Canadian circus companies in there as well who haven't been seen in Melbourne since 2009. There's a breadth of really intriguing visual art uh, programs as well, such as the, the event that's on at uh, CCP, the Centre for Contemporary Photography, which is a conversation between Australian artists and the uh, uh, what US photographer, I think it was, Walker yes. Evans, who's documenting working class life and so forth. So there's this real rich and breadth and range of work. It's, uh, it's interesting. Well, I started off wanting to make it about Melbourne and thought, what are the defining features and, and how do we make, how do we find work that 
almost at every turn either reinvents a space or reignites uh, or rediscovers somewhere or talks about city life and who we are today. I, I love the fact that whilst everywhere is being gentrified and, and Penny Arcade talks about this better than anyone, although she's not in the programme, but uh, she uh, she talks about the idea of gentrification. And I, I I love the fact that whilst, yes, there is that going on, actually in Melbourne you see the, the different levels and stratas within it. So you see beautiful modern glass and steel buildings right next to an old brick uh, and glass and stone building and, and the graffiti sits next to uh, high design and architecture and that's exciting so I wanted a program that really used spaces that people hadn't seen before and everything has been done in the world but and everything that's been done in the world has been done here so there was a, there was a bit of it about going out there and saying what's new and and finally I wanted to place kind of an excellent piece of international fabulous work and a piece of international quality fabulous work from here in Melbourne alongside each other along with um, collaborations between the two in every art form so uh, actually whichever whichever area of the festival you're interested in um, there will be a highlight there'll be Lucy Guerin uh, alongside Faye Driscoll I mean not not physically but just they sit next to each other and without grace or favour they're, they're both of the same quality and that's really exciting and back to back alongside Lepage it's it's just I think there's no need to say that's from here, that's from there. This is just world-class work. It's going to be a challenge for people to negotiate the programme in some ways. I've <laughs> spoken to a friend on Tuesday night who had already worked out that if he sees just the shows he really wants to see, um, he's going to be spending over a grand on tickets and he's currently going, right, what, 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 where can I prioritise? What can I do? Um, well, eat, eat, eat less, go out. I mean, the rest of the year, just just don't go out. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's that simple. No, I do worry. I do. I think there is a pastoral care thing. Um, and, uh, and, and I... And I, I uh, I hope that's a great that's a great problem to give people, and I think that's the problem we face all the time. Though I mean, I I, I never start a week in Melbourne without thinking there are more things this week that I want to do than I possibly can do. And I've lived in places around the world. That's not always the case. There are weeks when you go, I've got nothing on until a week on Tuesday. Here, it's 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 great. So that is, I think that's a good problem to give people. Maybe yeah. Now um, just to wrap up, Jonathan, we're there's, as I said, there's a great visual arts program. There's a strong uh, music program. Uh, obviously, the dance program's really engaging. Anything involving the performing arts is, draws me in. Um, I think we should wrap up by talking about the fact that you've, you're, we've mentioned Tandarum, uh, but I also wanted to talk about the, as I <laughs> referred to earlier, you've got weird pyrotechnic people running down laneways in a big public event, and then you've got intimate work for just audiences of one or two, one of which is a local work, the Guerrilla Museum's funeral, which I've experienced and is exquisite and life-affirming and I can say absolutely nothing about right. it. Okay. Um, but I do want to know about, what's this about people setting themselves on fire, running down laneways? Yeah, they're, they're not really setting themselves on fire, uh, nor are they setting anyone else on fire. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a Corre Foc, which is a Spanish for running with fire. So uh, it's a company from the Basque country um, they are, they're, they're drummers, they're dressed in beautiful costumes as, uh, rams, completely randomly, and, uh, drumming very loud, and uh, just acoustic, but very loud, and sort of terrorizing the audience and drumming at them in formation and then leading them through the streets. But yes, every, every five or ten minutes they pause, form a circle with the audience, and then, and then they're covered from head to toe in pyrotechnics. Uh, which then go off and people dance under the sparks or uh, in non-Spanish countries near the sparks. <laughs> um, and uh, it's it's not, it's, it's absolutely sensational. But it has that sort of pagan 
um, sort of drumming. It's one of those events where, where people get almost ecstatic because it's 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 loud, it's 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 in your face. But then, uh, where as soon as the sparks go off, uh, it's ridiculous. And um, and so uh, the idea of, of of this is that we don't need to build a stage over here with a sound system and have people go to that event. It starts in Fed Square, goes up Hosier Lane. It, it, people follow it, and it's it's going past the city. So actually. The, the city becomes the, the set. It becomes the, the space where people are, are playing. Well, I think people are going to be playing in and around Melbourne a lot during this year's Melbourne Festival, running from the 6th to the 23rd of October. The full program is out now uh, in a, a very attractively designed and articulately written uh, document. I highly recommend picking up a copy or jumping online, going to www.festival.melbourne uh, to immerse yourself in the program and start booking because shows will sell out, particularly the, those for audiences of one or two. Yes. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Richard. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. If you're an artist and uh, you look despairingly when houses around you sell for a million, a million and a half, uh, and the, I know the block of uh, run-down factories that you used to have a studio in have been demolished to make way for even more expensive apartments, you'll probably be inspired by the film Winter at West Beth, which is screening at the Melbourne International Film Festival from this weekend. There's a session this Saturday and another session on Monday, and I'll give full uh, screening details. Its director, uh, Rowan Spong, joins me in the studio now. Rowan, good morning. Good morning, Richard. How are you? I'm really well, really well. And I'm really intrigued by this film because you're an Australian director, Uh Melbourne-based. This is yet another film that you've made in the United States. Yeah. You seem to go over there and find amazing documentary subjects. Um, I believe that it was the the subject of your previous documentary, All the Way Through Evening, that then put you onto the artist's colony, Westbeth, which you've now made this documentary about. Yeah, that's correct. So previously, I'd made this film with Mimi Sternwolf, an amazing pianist in, in New York's East Village. And when the film that we made opened theatrically in New York, we decided after we'd finished all of our, our duties, our press, etc., that we would go look at some art galleries. And it was snowing, and she really kind of had to drag me out. And she she promised that at the end of the day of, of, of looking at galleries in the West Village, we would wind up at Westbeth's Art Gallery, which had a long warm bar heater that we could warm our tushies on, as she phrased it. And uh, it was the most fortuitous bottom warming, I think, that I've ever had in that... Uh, it, it was a bright, colourful space with a lot of elderly artists all kind of exhibiting their work and, and it was just probably one of the most lively, evocative spaces that I've, I've, I've chanced upon in New York. Now, it's uh, a multi-storey building, uh, yeah. home to, uh, there's 385 apartments that artists have been living in, uh, rent-controlled apartments since uh, they moved in in 1970. And the building itself even before it became the Westbeth Artist Residencies and Studio became, uh, was known as a place of innovation because Alexander Graham Bell was operating out of there. Uh, So it's just an intriguing space right from the get-go, but the notion of rent-controlled residencies for artists um, is something that I would love to see more cities 
adopting. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that, I mean, this space was was going to be knocked down until the National Endowment for the Arts and Organization in New York decided that it could be repurposed as, as artists' housing. It has a really kooky look too. So it's sort of, it's almost like a that sort of Ned Kelly's peering through the, the bushranger mask kind of um, shape when you stand in the courtyard and look up. It's a large rectangle, so you sort of see this rectangle of sky. Um, you know, great to film in, you know, with wide-angle lenses and all the rest of it. Uh, but no, the, the the telephone was invented in that building. Uh, the condenser microphone was invented in that building. There was an early version of television transmission that was tested in that building. It is said that um, some of the, the science behind the atomic bomb occurred in that building so it's certainly a building with a checkered past and an intriguing future given that so many of the artists who you feature in the documentary are elderly they're they're at a point in their life where they're quite reflective uh which makes for an interesting subject because they're they're like any artist they're thoughtful and they're contemplative but instead of the boundless energy of youth you've did you deliberately just choose a handful of the older residents or predominantly everybody in the building kind of in their senior years um the majority of people that you see when you walk around west beth are are of that vintage i think a lot of them moved in in 1970 or or shortly thereafter and have stayed there um you know for, for 40 odd years uh and I guess I chose those artists because I thought um, it would be an interesting tension in terms of, you know, when you're an artist, your journey is that you, you put all your chips on red and you make that decision and that, that bargain with the devil, if you will, that you're going to do this for the rest of your life. And um, I guess, you know, as a younger artist, I have, I've got my own kind of questions about that every other day of the week. And I was curious about how these artists felt about those decisions that they'd made in their life, this, sometimes sacrifices, um, sometimes adventures that they'd encountered as a result of being artists all these years later. Um, and so, yes, the, the artists are reflective on the highs and lows of their careers as artists, but also, I, I guess, the great loves of their lives. That's another kind of theme that emerges, um, the regrets in their lives or otherwise, uh, and the fact is that it, these artists aren't just sitting around talking about the past. They're all still very much making things. So, you know, we see there's three three artists profiled in the film. Ilsa Gilbert is 81. She's survived breast cancer. She's concerned um, or she, she didn't necessarily anticipate having this next lease on life that she has. And so she's lining up at open mic nights to read her poetry and, and organising pen writers meetings for her circle of elderly lady friends. And then there's Edith Steffen, she's 96, uh, and she was a dancer and she's, she decided at, at 91 that she would retire from dancing and just make films, so she's taught herself filmmaking at kind of in her early 90s, which is no mean feat. And then there's Dudley Williams, and the film finds him, he was a very, very kind of famous, well-known dancer, uh, certainly in the New York scene. Uh, he was a principal with Martha Graham and then uh, a principal with the Elvin Ailey Company. Uh, and he, in the film, I guess he's coming to terms with the fact that he's retired from the professional stage but still wishes to dance. Um, and, and sort of his aspirations as a teacher and what it is he'd like to pass on to his students. So th- those are some of the sorts of characters that the film encounters and the journeys that these people go on. 
Was it difficult for you as an Australian uh, document documentarian and filmmaker to gain the trust of these New Yorkers? And were they were they curious as to why you'd come all this way to shoot them? And and or, obviously you already had an in to kind of to their milieu, their scene um, uh, through Mimi, the the subject of your previous film. So I imagine that helped gain trust. But I'm sure you still must have had to overcome reservations and suspicions as to why you cared about them and their lives when why you'd come all this way i think when people get to a certain age they don't anticipate that that's going to happen you know i think if you've kind of for example gone through your 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 decade of your 70s and nobody's kind of picked up the phone or written a story about you or um done a radio interview with you or whatever i think there's an assumption that it's not going to happen then you know that that that, that sort of um attention is not going to be paid to you so i think it was a bit of a nice surprise particularly for ilsa and edith dudley was a little bit more complex um he was very happy for me to trail him and to film him going about his daily business you know we you know we see him kind of going for groceries um we see him teaching his classes later on we see him rehearsing for a new dance work at you know age 75 um but he was initially reticent to sit down and do interviews um and so i was initially trying to work out well how how can i structure a film without his interviews um given the sort of style of film that that i've made in the past but later on he 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 uh he he became convinced i think once he we'd spent a lot of time together he began to trust me i like spending time with the participants i mean you know, it's, there's a, there's a touch of Harold and Maud about it. Um, but there's also, you know, you serve different purposes in each other's lives. You know, Elsa, you know, loves when I come over because it means that I can change all the clocks in her apartment for daylight savings. Um, but she also, you know, sneaks me, uh, you know, a bottle of Dr. Pepper in because she knows I like Dr. Pepper and you can't get good Dr. Pepper in Australia, apparently. And, um, you know, it's quite a, it's quite a sweet relationship that we all have together. And the, and the, they've now met each other as well, and that was quite um, that's that's quite special because I think often when people get old, even if um, in in a community like Westbeth, you know, the groups of people that you know ultimately become smaller and smaller and smaller. So the idea of meeting new people in your seventies or eighties or nineties um, can be a real kind of joy. Now, if you've just tuned in, we're speaking to Melbourne filmmaker Rowan Spong about his documentary Winter at West Beth, which is screening at the Melbourne International Film Festival. Not its Australian premiere because it's already screened at Sydney, but uh, its Melbourne premieres are coming up. So this Saturday, uh, the, the 6th of August at 1.30pm at Hoyt's Melbourne Central, followed by a Q&A with Rowan hosted by Sean Miller and uh, another screening on Monday at uh, 4pm at the Forum Theatre, again with a, with a Q&A. So uh, if what you're hearing intrigues you, you can get along and, and hear even more about Rowan, the film, and his process. Tell us about your process as a filmmaker, because are, are you filming as well as directing? Yeah, so I, I literally carry the gear. <laughs> I set up the tripod, I put the camera on the tripod, I set up the sound gear. And then we have a conversation if it's, uh, if it's an interview. Um, this film has dance sequences in it. So we see, you know, the 95 year old Edith dancing. We see 75 year old Dudley dancing. Um, and in that instance, there was a, a second cinematographer. But other than that, all of the, the footage is shot by yours truly. Um, and so I guess part of my process is, um, 
you know, interviewing. I think the, the spine of my work is what it is people have to say about their lives. And I think spending a lot of time with people, they can be quite candid with you and, you know, you can really nut down, you know, knuckle down on, on what it is that the greatest joys and, and pains in somebody's life are. Um, and that's, that's really quite beautiful when, when the conversation flourishes and, and you, laugh together and cry together over those things and hopefully that spills over for the audience. But then once the interviews are done, really what I do is is try and think about how to tell the story in visual terms. So, you know, what would the establishing shot of this scene be? What would the cutaways of this scene be? Because it's a film set in apartment building, in an apartment building, um, there's a lot of um, sort of exploration of that space, what it is people have in their apartments, what it is they have on display. What they can see from their windows New yeah. across the Hudson River, New Absolutely. Jersey on the other side. There's a great moment where Edith sits in her chair and she's watching um, the, the lights change uh, as she looks out across the Hudson to New Jersey and she says that at, at her time in life, sitting down, it's like a psychedelic experience. Um, and I think we, we could all be blessed to, to, to wind up sitting in a chair with a psychedelic experience at age 95. <laughs> Winter at West Beth is screening at the Melbourne International Film Festival. I've only watched the first 15 minutes or so of yeah. it because watching a Vimeo link on the computer at home is not the same <laughs> as watching a film with an audience and no. feeling the audience response to the work as well. But what I have seen, it's beautifully shot, the, it, it kind of strikingly composed images and there's a, there's a vibrancy to it which is only appropriate when we're, when it's a documentary about artists no matter what period their life they're living at and it's uh you know coming to see it i will say coming to see it at myth they're really big screens like the hoits that they've put us in is massive so um i think there's a kind of beauty about looking at these quite vibrant quite colorful older people's faces and lives on such large screens Ron, final question for you. Advice for young would-be documentarians or indeed would-be documentary filmmakers of any age who may be listening who are thinking, well, I can pick up a camera and, and shoot and record and edit because kind of cameras are now small and portable and the sound quality from the microphones is good and I've got the, I can just use whatever program on my computer at home. I can make a short film. What advice have you got for them about the process of making a documentary? Well, the first thing I'll say is just invest in a good lens. That's just kind of a practical thing. Um, but the second thing I guess is more or less in that I've gleaned I guess over the years from working with people like Mimi and, and, and the participants of Winter at Westbeth. Um, and that is that, you know, when you make something, you're making it for a reason and you're making it kind of in the context of, of a time and a place in, in which you live. And you look at these artists and, you know, Ilsa's work deals with feminism. It deals with women's bodies. Um, it deals with aging bodies. Um, Edith's work deals with, um, kind of the, the Occupy Wall Street movement at, uh, and Dudley's work certainly engages with civil rights uh, and a variety of issues related to being a gay man and relationships. So um, I guess that work should say something. Uh, I think that's probably the most important thing, that the audience should either learn something or feel something by the time they they walk away from it. And that's ultimately what you're aspiring to. 
Well, based on your previous films, which have, uh, I've seen, including Tears for Teacher and All the Way Through Evening, I think audiences will both learn and feel something when they see Winter at Westbeth at the Melbourne International Film Festival. Screening details, again, as I said, it's uh, screening this Saturday, 1.30pm at Hoyt's uh, Melbourne Central, Monday, 4pm at the Forum Theatre. Uh, you can book and find out more information at miff.com.au. The documentary is Winter at Westbeth. The filmmaker is director Rowan Spong. Rowan, thanks for joining us at Triple R. Thank you for having me. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Max Delaney is the director of ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. Uh, Max, you've only been in the role about four months now, I, I think believe. five or six months five since six February. February. Yeah. So uh, you've now settled in. How's it all going there? Oh, it's actually really exciting, Richard. I'm really enjoying... Um, Working uh, in you know what's an extraordinary you know building with a great history, um, wonderful neighbours alongside at the Malt House and Chunky Move on the South Bank uh, Arts Precinct, and um, we've got some really exciting projects in the pipeline. Yeah. So for people who are unfamiliar with ACCA, uh, even physically or in terms of its mission statement, tell us a little bit more about what ACCA is and what its place is in the Melbourne kind of visual arts ecology. Yeah. Well. ACCA is um, perhaps familiar to many people as the big rusty building um, designed by Wood Marsh um, in Southbank. Um, it is it, um, Melbourne's leading contemporary art space um, and our role is really to uh, commission uh, new work by Australian and international contemporary artists. Um, we seek to be very bold and adventurous in, um, in the work that we commission and produce. Um, we're engaged in contemporary art in all its forms uh, and we are a platform, I think, for a wide range of um, artistic and curatorial practice. Now, you've taken over from a long-standing artistic director, Juliana Engberg, uh, who'd been there for many years. Uh, does you, you coming in as director mean that uh, the Melbourne public and the, and the visual arts sector will see a sudden abrupt change of direction in, at ACCA, for example, is now that you've taken over the reins? Is it business as usual? Is it a slow progression somewhere new? What are your plans? Well, um, it's, it's a great honour to... Um, to succeed Juliana, um, she uh, really established a very ambitious program at ACCA um, with um, great verve and ambition. And ACCA has been known for very uh, ambitious commissions by leading international artists, but also as an important platform for Australian artists. Um, uh, Juliana had a very you know, strong authorial program um, and was the artistic director since 2002. So um, I'm really excited to build on that legacy and that history of achievement. Um, I am very interested in bringing new voices into the mix at ACCA, um, both um, artistic voices and curatorial voices, and we will be uh, indeed working with a number of guest curators uh, in the in the period ahead. Um, the first um, exhibition that I'll be developing um, really from scratch is an exhibition which um, uh, opens in December, um, which is an exhibition called Sovereignty, which focuses on uh, contemporary uh, Indigenous art from South East Australia, First Nations artists from Victoria, um, and really looks at um, some of the most interesting cultural and indeed social and political practices taking place uh, in, um, in, in, our, in our region. Um, but the, so in many respects, we're really keen to sort of build on 
the program that, that Juliana established, but also to be introducing new forms of um, programming. I'm also very interested in developing, um, you know, doing more in the way of public program, performance screenings, events, uh, book launches, parties, um, also hopefully activating the precinct um, around us, um, both alongside the Malthouse and Chunky Moo, but, you know, in the city more more broadly. Yeah. Now, as you said, so sovereignty, when it comes up later in the year, will really be your first kind of show under your own umbrella, as it were, which means the current show that uh, kicked off on the 29th of July, Painting More Painting, is what, is it half Juliana, half you, for example, or...? Well, no, it's, it's actually, it, it happily came about, um, when I was discussing the role with the board last year, I was very keen and interested to, to, to develop a, an exhibition focusing on contemporary painting. So the current exhibition at Acker, um, which opened last Friday, is called Painting More Painting, and it's a big picture, uh, exploration of contemporary Australian painting, um, covering a broad spectrum of, from early career artists to mid and senior career artists, and national in scope. Um, when I commenced in February, um, uh, Annika Christensen, who's curator at Acker, and um, Hannah Matthews, um, associate curator, had a proposal also for a painting show uh, called Painting More Painting. Um, so really the curatorial structure was developed by Hannah and, uh, and Annika, but we've sort of joined forces to unfold the exhibition which opened on Friday night. Now, painting seems to be having um, a renaissance in terms of the contemporary art world. There was a, quite a while where uh, a more, I, I guess, a more traditional art form like painting had dropped out of style, so to speak. Uh, but now, certainly, I had a conversation on this show uh, just about a month ago, somebody telling me that all of the students at the VCA at the moment all want to do painting, for example, and I've seen new exhibitions focusing on painting at, at other uh, institutions around the country as well. Why do you think painting is having a renaissance? I mean, I think it's it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, of course, painting is one of the most enduring and long-standing um, art forms in the visual arts, and it has never gone away, and there are some, you know, extraordinary painters of, through all generations who've continued to make very interesting work. But it is true that if you went into art schools um, some years ago into the painting department, people were often making videos or performance practices and, and other um, forms. But um, more recently there has been a, a resurgence or a renewed um, engagement with um, painting. Um, our, our exhibition focuses on current and recent work, but we've given ourselves the last 10 years as a time frame. And so it's interesting to think about that that historical moment. Um, in 2007, you know, it was the invention of Tumblr, for example, and, and um, you know, the kind of cascading flows of images on the internet and through digital realms. Um, and so... I think there are many theses and, and reasons why um, there has been a renewed interest in painting. Um, it may, on the one hand, be um, in counterpoint to the digital and the virtual. People are very interested in, in the materiality of painting, in the, in, in the direct engagement that audiences have or a viewer might have with a painting, you know, a one-on-one -on -one experience with the materiality of paint on a support. Um, I think the... Um, the nature of painting is also something which demands our attention. You know, um, painting takes time to make. It's a kind of, um, it, it also takes time to engage with and, and it, but it is also very much something which is in the real world. And I think people are also interested in the, in the materiality of, of paint, um, and its direct engagement with the viewer. Um, 
equally, um, I mean, it is it is the case there have there ha- this has been true internationally as well. There have been quite a number of exhibitions internationally over the past decade. A lot of publications around painting, um, and and I think you know artists have. Um, Often, you know, I think the digital has also provided a new stimulus for for painting and new perceptual modes of engagement. And, and but we're also very much very interested in the way that artists have continued to seek to reinvent painting with within what are quite you know delimited um, um, means. Now, speaking of reinvention, uh, am I right in thinking that this exhibition, Painting More Painting at Acker, is also kind of reinventing the curatorial approach because you're, you're showing people alphabetically rather than in, in some other means? Well, the exhibition has, is structured in two ways. So on the one hand, in the three Saad galleries at Acker, um, which are, are more conventionally scaled, um, we're presenting seven, um, seven solo um, studies. So the exhibition is presented over two chapters. So in each chapter, we present seven solo studies studies, um, therefore of the two chapters, 14 artists, 14 distinct uh, painterly positions, different approaches, conceptual approaches, formal approaches, um, and then in that case we're able to see a number of artists work in some depth through a body of work or a selection of work or a major singular statement. Um, in the main gallery at Acker, which is um, a vast exhibition hall, you know, measuring approximately 30 by 15 metres and with nine, 7 and 9 metre ceilings, uh, it's a more challenging architectural space for painting um, and in that space we have developed a sort of panoramic group exhibition which really represents the, the radical pluralism of painting. Painting um, is very diverse in its forms um, and in the approaches that artists take and so in that space we we are indeed presenting the exhibition over two chapters the first chapter in the panoramic section um, presents artists from uh, whose names start from a to m and the second chapter from n to z um, so in some senses it gives a kind of indexical approach to a range of diverse and sometimes incommensurate positions um, We've also commissioned a major mural scale wall painting by um, the artist Sam Songalo, which uh, is a very dynamic um, uh, open form grid. It's, a, it's an 80 metre mural painting which wraps the, the main exhibition gallery at Acker. Um, and that uh, grid provides a kind of dynamic backdrop upon which a range of diverse positions are presented. I'm intrigued to see what kind of conversations and synergies evolve uh, from the hang when kind of works are hung alphabetically, for example, because instead of a curatorial approach which will cluster and group uh, works by the way that they they are in dialogue with one another, there could be some quite jarring juxtapositions in this instance which will in itself perhaps spark new creativity and new ideas. Well, it's true that um, that rather than arrange works according to genre or style or other sort of discursive frameworks, we have presented them uh, in alphabetical order. And in many cases, artists have made new work for the exhibition. So uh, even as curators, we weren't, were not necessarily familiar with what those works would be until about a month or six weeks ago when the works were concluded for exhibition. So you do have um, some very happy dialogues and relationships developing um, with artists alongside each other. At other times, more sort of contested or polemic um, debates um, ensue. And I think also with um, Sam Songello's uh, wall mural, um, 
the kind of diagonal grid structure also allows for connection, connections and shared dialogues across the room and around the room. And we were very interested in the kinds of conversations that, that painters have with one another. Um, when artists are working in the studio, painters in particular, um, they are inevitably engaging with both the history of painting, its medium-specific history, um, with art history, but also they're often uh, developing their work whilst in dialogue and engagement with, with other artists and their peers. If you're intrigued by our conversation, Painting More Painting, uh, part one, or chapter one, I'm sorry to give it its uh, official title, uh, is on now at ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, until the 28th of August. And then chapter two will be showing from the 1st until the 25th of September uh, this year. Uh, ACCA is at 111 Sturt Street, South Bank, open from 10am till 5pm, Tuesdays to Fridays, and midday till 5pm, weekends and public holidays, Mondays by appointment. Um, more information, jump online at ackeronline.org.au. Um, Max, the exhibition has obviously only been open for uh, about a week. What's the response been so far from people? Uh, do you loiter in the gallery, eavesdropping on complete strangers? I, I do, actually. I've been on the floor quite a lot in the last few days. I'm really enjoying it. We're actually having lots of people through. Um, everyone has strong opinions about painting. We've actually had literally hundreds of people through at any one time. A great buzz in the gallery. Um it's been really... It's, it's a very generous show. Um, the exhibition presents over 75 artists um, over the two chapters. Um, and indeed, it's a great exhibition for, for audiences, for students. Um, we can see the work of some of our leading artists um, in some depth. You know, um, the work currently um, on display of Helen Johnson or Vivian Binns, um, Lisa Radford, among others, um, Abdul Abdullah. Uh, so young artists in early stage of their careers as well as some of our most established and senior artists. Um, we have the work of Helen Maudsley, who began painting in the 1940s, um, and we have a number of artists such as Kirsty Budge or Hamishi Farah, who have only recently grad. You know, well, in case of um, of Kirsty Budge, um, she's recently graduated from from art school, and Hamishi is also an artist in the early stages of his career, practice. So it's um it's an opportunity to engage in a, a very um, diverse range of painterly practices. Painting More Painting, Chapter 1, on now at ACCA, as I said, until the 28th of August. We've been talking to the new director of ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, Max Delaney. Max, a pleasure having you in. Thanks a lot, Richard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.